0: So it's one draft with both parties?
1: Oh, no, that would be crazy. No, it's two separate drafts. If you had looked at the prep document, you would see that we're going to do Republicans I'm always first. I'm for
0: a draft of any kind, Galen. I don't need to prep for a draft.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, wow. Doesn't need to prep. Bold.
1: <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druke. Today is a special day because we're going to hold our first ever 2024 presidential primary draft. In other words, we'll compete with each other to determine who is likeliest to win both parties' nominations in the next presidential election. Now, before you roll your eyes and groan, we haven't even gotten past the midterms yet. Why are we holding a presidential nominating draft? Let me remind you that the candidates who plan to vie for the presidency are already laying the groundwork for their runs. In fact, they have been for some time. They're fundraising, traveling the country, and crafting their identities and messages. By this time next year, numerous candidates will have made their bids official. And you can bet that party leadership is thinking about who will carry their party's torch in the next election. At the moment, majorities of Americans say they don't want either Trump or Biden to run in 2024. So will it be a president and a former president straddling either side of 80, or are the two parties headed for a real shakeup? Here with me to discuss is Editor-in-Chief Nate Silver. Hey, Nate. Hey, everybody. Also here with us is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey Sarah.
2: Hey y'all. Hey Galen.
1: And elections analyst Nathaniel Rega Hey Nathaniel. Hey Galen. So uh how's everyone feeling? Do you feel it's too early to be doing a primary draft? I didn't ask for your input. I just told you that we were doing this. Or do you feel like we're on solid footing? This is about the time we should start thinking about these things.
3: Galen, I am still burned out from the 2020 election. So <laughs> How dare you? This is a personal affront to me.
2: <laughs> it's not too early, but I am really curious to see, like, the results of the 2022 midterms. There's a lot riding on the ballot there, I think, that will affect some of this.
1: Okay. That's fair. That is totally fair and acceptable. Mr. Silver?
0: I'm not just pro-draft. I'm
1: also strongly
0: anti-anti-draft. <laughs> the people who are too precious. I mean, who first of all... God
1: love you, mate. God love you.
0: <laughs> who was president... A, is extremely important, and B, bears on all types of things that are going on in politics today. All this stuff in Florida might be different if Ron DeSantis weren't interested in becoming the Republican nominee in 2024, for example. And so, like, you can't discuss politics in a coherent and rational way without understanding that this is a big incentive for lots of different actors in the political space.
1: Of course. Although I love that you're not just pro-draft, you're anti-anti-draft which I think you actually feel more strongly even that you're anti-anti-draft than maybe that you're pro-draft because you're a a counter-puncher. You gotta, you know, you gotta fight back.
0: Doesn't that motivate all of us at the end of the day? We want competition. We want enemies. We want rivalries,
1: right? That's human nature. Yeah, I don't know. Let's have a little therapy sesh at the top of this podcast. Do humans need enemies? Yes. I don't know. I guess that's maybe a philosophical question as well. This is one of the most
0: basic truths of human nature. People don't understand that. They haven't, like, lived on this planet.
1: Hmm. Sarah and Rikic, do you agree?
3: I mean, yeah, I think to Nate's point, pretty much all of history is people making enemies and trying to kill their enemies. So yeah.
2: All
1: right, fair enough. I don't Not know, great.
2: man. I'm, I'm about <laughs> frenemies, but I don't know if I need mm. enemies, you know? Like enemies just weighs you down, you know? Keep your enemies close, but like also kind of trick them into thinking they're, you know, on good terms with you. I don't know if I need that much hate.
1: <laughs> Sarah's on a whole okay. other level, guys. <laughs> all right. I feel like in that world, you still have enemies.
2: But they don't know that they're my enemy. Hmm.
1: <laughs> Should I be worried, Sarah? None of this applies to anyone to on, the the on this podcast right now.
2: <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. Right, guys? You, know, you got to be a little cutthroat.
1: Okay. So, after all of that, in fact, we're not going to begin this podcast with the draft. We have a good or bad use of polling to get to first, which is on everyone's favorite topic. Face masks on public transportation. So last Monday, as I'm sure folks know, a U.S. district judge struck down the CDC's mask requirement on public transit, including planes, trains, and buses. The Department of Justice is appealing, but in response to that decision, airlines quickly announced that masks would be optional on flights going forward. Videos circulated online of airline workers announcing the end of the mask mandate to applause on planes and people removing their masks. Photos have also circulated of people on airplanes smiling maskless along with flight attendants and pilots. And some commentators have said that these reactions are evidence that the polling showing a majority of Americans support mask requirements on planes is wrong. At least in these videos and photos, it doesn't look like a majority of people are actually keeping their masks on. We have some enic data from our colleague Chad Matlin flew between New York City and Denver this weekend And he said about 25% of folks on the plane were masked. So this commentary saying that issue polling, this polling on wearing masks on planes is wrong, came from all corners. But just to point out one example, so we sort of have a tangible one to point to, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Connor Sen, tweeted an Axios poll showing that a majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, support mask requirements in airports and wrote, quote, all this does is discredit issue polling. So I ask all of you, is this commentary on issue polling a good or bad use of polling? Nathaniel Rikic, would you like to kick us off?
3: This is a bad use of polling. Issue polling is not broken. It's just complicated. Don't misunderstand me. I certainly think that the same reasons that we should maybe be concerned about the health of polling in general, like you know, political polls and the fact that they have had some high-profile errors recently. I think those errors absolutely could apply to issue polls as well, and probably do. But even those kinds of misses, you know, we're talking about five-point miss or something like that. We're not talking about being wildly off like I think that a lot of these polls that show solid majorities uh, support the public transit mask mandate, and yet the 25% of people are wearing um, masks on airplanes. That's, That's a much bigger disconnect there. And I think that this is just because people feel differently about how what public policy should be versus the way that they feel themselves. It's also just because, obviously, people who are flying on an airplane aren't necessarily a representative sample. Um, According to morning consult poll from earlier this month, for example, only 48% of Americans said that they would be comfortable flying on airplanes. So the folks who are actually on the plane might not include those who are kind of the most COVID cautious, for example. I think that people's opinions on the mask mandate Change based on the context, change based on what cases are like at the time, putting on your mask for the whole flight versus part of the flight and being happy about it. It's just very complicated and we need to embrace that uncertainty in the issue polling rather than say that a given poll is a gospel truth.
2: I agree with Nathaniel. This this is kind of a dumb storyline that's come out of this. As Nathaniel was getting at, support for a mandate can be very different than what you yourself want to do personally. And that Axios poll even captured that, right? Like a lot of people say they're in support of a mandate, but they themselves wouldn't wear it personally. That's not unusual on a whole host of issues. And I think more broadly, what we have seen as a long-term trend with the pandemic is that a lot of response on different preventative measures really ebb and flow with the severity of the pandemic. And right now, even though there is a surge in terms of cases with this latest variant, it has not proven to be as deadly. And Americans haven't been as worried as they were with the Delta variant or with Omicron. And overall, we're trending towards more now, just kind of people being done with it. So... This in and of itself, I don't think is terribly surprising.
1: Yeah, just to highlight the numbers there, Sarah, in this Axios poll, the percentage of people who support mask requirements in airports was 75%. And the percentage who say they are very likely to wear a mask in airports is 46%. So that's the divide in terms of stated preference for policy versus actual behavior. Nate, do you also think that this is a bad use of polling? I
0: disagree with my respected colleagues. I think this is a pretty concerning finding. Hmm.
1: Never would have guessed that. <laughs> I know. I, I'm really looking forward to this. Well, look, let's,
0: no, I'm kidding. But go ahead. We don't care about polls for poll's sake, right? We care about public opinion. And if we have more direct evidence of public opinion and they don't match the polls, then that's deeply concerning. There have been some issues in election polling, obviously, over the past several election cycles. But this does not match reality and there are different explanations you can give for that, but it's concerning at face level. And you hear lots of anecdotes like Chad's about, you know, maybe 25% of people, and by the way, New York and Denver are two pretty liberal cities. I don't know what happens when you fly between Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Dallas, or something also like that, a liberal right? City. Baton Rouge? Yeah. Okay. But like, you're getting a larger area of people who are not necessarily in Baton Rouge okay. itself. I mean, look, there are a few different explanations here, some of which have been mentioned. So, you know, in no particular order, One theory could be that the people who are choosing to fly on planes are not representative of the population as a whole. I think that's important to consider. At the same time, if you look at actual passenger traffic on airlines, it's up to about 90% of what it was in 2019 before the pandemic, despite a big decrease in business travel. So that's kind of doesn't really match this notion. Maybe some people are are afraid to fly ordinarily, but I'm not sure I buy that half of Americans are – afraid to fly an airplane, when basically you have the amount of recreational air traffic is the same as it was before the pandemic, if not maybe a little higher, if anything, right? Because business travel is still down quite a bit. Another theory more concerning for polls is that polls are not capturing a representative sample. So maybe people who are more inclined to answer polls are more likely to stay at home, are more liberal in their attitudes in certain ways, are more COVID cautious. That's a big concern potentially. Number three, maybe people are not setting their true preferences. So- if they see expressing COVID caution as desirable, then there might be response bias in that respect. And kind of their true feelings are expressed more when they actually are on the plane and aren't wearing a mask. And then there's a chance that like people's preferences are correctly stated but complicated in different ways. Look, in some ways, if you're being purely selfish, then the best policy might be, hey, I want everyone else to wear a mask, but I don't want to have to myself, right? That way you right. reduce your arm risk without having this annoyance, I guess, of wearing a mask, right?
3: I think a lot of people feel that way.
0: I think they probably do. I'd also mention, by the way, that the revealed preference is not just from what passengers are doing, but also what the airlines are doing. Every single airline removed its mask mandate in the United States, including some like JetBlue, for example, that overwhelmingly travel in like liberal areas, right? It seems anecdotally that flight attendants were pretty happy with this mandate being- Oh,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I think the airlines and the flight attendants were the most burdened by this because it made their jobs miserable.
0: Yeah. By the way, I think one of the better arguments for a mask mandate is that now you face this kind of unpleasant and annoying complication where like, people are going to judge you one way or the other based on whether you're wearing a mask or not, which seems like sort of annoying. I was giving a talk on a college campus recently, which had recently removed its mask mandate. About half of students were wearing a mask, about half weren't. And clearly there were different social statuses conveyed by that. The kind of bro-y business school students were mostly not wearing masks. Maybe people who were like sociology majors were wearing masks, not to stereotype too much, but, um, but it does kind of <laughs> create a burden where you have to like now decide- What does a sociology
1: like, major <laughs> look like? <laughs> Wait, I do <don't> <laughs> I think that like might be true on a college campus where people are obviously in the process of getting a college education. I think this was an elite school where people are much more focused on politics. The way that this gets framed in the media, like, oh, it's a war between the masked and the maskless, is absolutely not what I witnessed living in one of our, like, quote unquote, big blue cities, is people, some people wear masks and some people don't. And it's been that way for a long time. No one yells at anyone. No one really cares. Yeah. It doesn't really seem to necessarily abide by race or class or whatever. I don't know people's politics being on the subway. I see some people who are not wearing a mask, and then if a homeless person comes by singing or shouting, they'll put their mask on. There doesn't seem to be these rigid ideologies and mask versus maskless hatred that gets portrayed in the media.
0: No, that's right. I mean, people, I think, mostly want to be polite. I think there are relatively few people that will not wear a mask if they think it's rude to not wear a mask, right? If you go into some coffee shop and the employees seem like they're very covid
1: cautious, then you probably put a mask on, right? I think in most parts of America, people don't carry masks anymore. Like, you have to be carrying a mask in order for that to be the case. Like, I think it's probably only in Blue cities where this dynamic even still exists, where it's sort of masked and maskless. But I, I still don't think there is a sort of, like, cross-community hatred. But we've gotten off topic a little bit. Do Sarah and Nathaniel, you agree? Or do you see Nate's argument, how do you respond to it, that there might be more to the issue polling fallibility than you initially suggested.
3: Again, I don't think it means that the issue polls are fallacious. I just think it means that they're complicated. So, like, I think from what I'm hearing from Nate, is it seems like what he has an issue with are the polls, like specifically the poll wordings that ask, like, do you support a mask mandate on public transportation? And that kind of being used as a proxy for people's attitudes about masks. Because I do think there's a difference between people, if they were magically put in the White House and they were given the power to implement a mask mandate and whether they think that is a wise policy for the United States to follow versus what they feel their personal risk tolerance is when they're on a seven hour cross country flight and they're annoyed having to wear a mask in that context. And I think that the same person can have different answers to those two questions. And so, for instance, the two questions in the Axos poll we've been talking about I fully believe both of them, but it seems like Nate wants to zoom in on the question of do Americans themselves want to be forced to wear masks? And that is probably better reflected in the one that had the 46%.
2: Yeah. And I'm struggling to come up with a good counter example because I do find Nate's argument on this interesting, but it's just like this idea that Americans say that they support something and then their individual behavior is different. That to me is not unique to this kind of poll, right? This isn't the best example, but I'm thinking about most Americans say they love bipartisanship. But then like when you ask them, well, does that mean Democrats, you know, getting their way on something or Republicans getting their way on something? Sure enough, there's like a partisan split on that where Democrats want their party to have done better and Republicans want their party to have done better. As I said, not the best example for this, but this idea that Americans say that they support something, but then when you drill into it further, it's like, ooh, actually not. I think that happens all the time. And I think part of that is something that's not like issue polling's broken. There's just social desirability bias. That is something that happens all of the time. It goes back to that idea of like, you're not wearing a mask, but you go in a room and everyone else is masked, you'll probably put on the mask if you're carrying a mask. I also I'm interested in how this changes. And also keep in mind, too, like it was a district court judge that did away with this ruling. And it's not really clear whether it'll stand. Like it does seem as if the Biden administration is very much like, oh, let's let it go. Let's do this poll again in another week and see where opinion is. I think people have kind of been ingrained for the last two-plus years that mask mandates are a good idea. I think we've started to see some of that on other issues start to wane as people are like more, the pandemic is with us, we need to learn to live with it. I could see support for this dropping. That would be my hypothesis anyway, moving forward.
1: But would that suggest then that it is social desirability bias that is causing high numbers. It's like in their heart of hearts, people don't really care or necessarily support it. But once they see these videos of like people taking off their masks and being happy and seeing that, oh, in fact, lots of people aren't wearing masks on planes and like, it's okay, that then they'll just change their answers to pollsters. I
2: think so. I think it's increasingly people are going to feel like it's no longer taboo to say that I don't think a mask mandate is necessary. I just don't think we're there yet. And I yeah. think that's what we're seeing with the responses. And I think, Nate, that's a fair point to say, like, hey, that's a huge problem. I would just push back that that's not unique to COVID.
3: Yeah. And I think where I got off the train is like the idea that this signals a problem with polling, at least beyond what we already knew about from the 2020 election results. Like, I don't think polls are having a 25-point errors, and that's something we need to be concerned about.
0: Well, I think if there's an issue that's going to cause issues for polling, then COVID's a good example of something that might have relatively biased polling. Everything that makes you more likely to be COVID cautious probably also makes you more likely to take a public opinion survey. And I think we should be more concerned about issue polls and election polls because we have a way to verify election polls. There's no way to like exactly test an issue, let's say like a referendum, like in California or something, right? But the fact that there's such a disparity between the ostensible COVID caution of Americans in polls, and like if you literally leave your house or apartment, even in liberal New York City, the reality is people really want to get back to to living their previous lives. I mean, that, I mean that has to be concerning.
1: Well, it sounds like we have two bad uses of polling and one good use of polling. Nathaniel and Sarah has Nate convinced you at all that this is in fact a good use of polling. And likewise, Nate, have Sarah or Nathaniel convinced you that this is a bad use of polling?
2: I'm going to assume I have not convinced Nate. Um, (laughs) I am intrigued by his argument, though. I think what you were saying earlier, Galen, about some of the divisions on COVID when it came to actual behaviors, particularly earlier in the pandemic, I think were overstated. And so this idea that more Americans are saying they support a mandate than actual behavior suggests, I guess I don't think that is necessarily a huge surprise, but perhaps a bigger problem, is Nate saying, for our democracy.
3: Well, I think earlier, Sarah, you were kind of reaching for an example, and I think like a good example would be like. Other laws that we have, things that are technically illegal, but people don't think of as big deal. So I'm thinking like speeding, like mm. how many Americans would say that there should be speed limits? Probably most of them, but I have gone over the speed limit. I right. would assume that almost everybody Wait, really? has. Daniel, <gasps> You're
0: admitting to a crime? Sorry. This is a good oh, example. Man. Thank oh, you. Oh God,
3: don't, don't report me, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like people within their own lives give themselves a little more leeway to be like, I trust myself in certain circumstances. And yeah, I just, I just don't see really any contradiction in the fact that somebody might think that a mask mandate or speed limits or something like that are good public policy, but aren't necessarily happy about having to obey them. Like that's not a contradiction to me at all.
1: Well, it may be a contradiction, but it may also be a very human contradiction.
3: Yeah. Right. Exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: All right. Well, let's move on and talk about something that, I don't know, Americans are probably not thinking about yet, but will become something that we'll pay attention to in the next year. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. We are going to begin our first presidential primary draft of 2024 on the Republican side. Biden has said that he plans to run for re-election in 2024, which would traditionally mean that the GOP primary is the competitive one. Of course, tradition doesn't always hold, and there may be some reason to think that Trump has a tighter grip on the GOP than Biden does on the Democratic Party. Only time will tell. But anyway, let's start with the GOP. Who do you think is likeliest to win the party's nomination? And I should say explicitly at the top that this has nothing to do with how you think this person might do in a general election or how likely they are to win the presidency. This is just focused on how likely they are to win the nomination. And we're going to do a snake draft because we believe in fairness. Here at five thirty-eight, we have already randomly assigned the order for this first draft, and it is... Nate, Galen, Sarah, Rakich. And this was not rigged. This was according to random.org. Without further ado, Nate Silver, who is your first pick for the 2024 Republican presidential primary? Trump. But which Trump?
0: No, former president. What? (laughs) Former President Donald (laughs) Trump, I believe is the most likely man to win the Republican nomination due to the fact that he won it last time. Last two times okay, is that Last the only times. reason? I mean, we could debate in some abstract. I don't think anyone would go against Trump being the most likely, and we can kind of debate in the abstract sense.
3: There you the probability
0: is DeSantis. I get oh, well, maybe
1: on prediction markets, what are the Scottish teams doing? Let me argue that. I'm next. I'm next. Okay, don't second guess yourself, Nate. Tell us why it's Trump. He is still a uh, popular
0: figure within the party. Um, usually, when you lose an election. You become unpopular. No one wanted Hillary Clinton to win the 2020 Democratic nomination, for example. However, many of his voters believe, and apparently sincerely, that the election was rigged and stolen and that he didn't really lose. He's not president. So why that belief would make you electable, I'm not sure, right? Maybe you need someone who is capable of winning a rigged election if you're following that line of false logic. But he is still a very popular figure among Republicans, according to all the polling, and you can start to poke holes in his case. It seems like he is running, someone, is it, Jonathan Bernstein, the political scientist, says, like, there's running for the nomination and running in the nomination, right? He's running for 2024, meaning he's taking the correct steps if he wants to run in 2024. It's not yet clear whether he'll actually follow through or not. He is pretty old. I think we should be open about discussing the age of politicians and and the health problems that can cause in an actuarial sense. It's important.
1: Leave arguing against Trump to us. I'm not. I'm pro-Trump in this
0: context of okay. who's the most likely nominee. Nate Silver, <laughs> pro-Trump. Nate Silver, you heard it I'm here. Pro- <laughs>
1: we're going to cut that right now. You're going to see it on GOP ads starting tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does anyone really want to argue against this, Nathaniel or Sarah? I think if no. we're going to argue against it, it can be sort of be by proxy in our subsequent picks. I'm next. I think Nate and I got off pretty easy here. I'm going to pick Ron DeSantis. So there's two ways to argue this, which is one that Trump won't run and that therefore DeSantis is the second strongest. Or there's DeSantis and Trump will both run and DeSantis will still win. I don't really know if I'm ready to argue for the second, but the way that I would argue for the second is that Trends seem ironclad until they're suddenly not. And I think this whole sentiment of the majorities of both parties don't want either candidate who's on, you know, who flank 80 to be running for president. Ron DeSantis is young. He has a young family. He has young children. He has sort of, if you're a Republican voter, all the positives of a Trump candidacy and just far fewer of the negatives. He seems to be strategically more focused on the culture war project of the Republican Party. He stays on message. He is, according to reporting, a very smart person. You know, he has the pedigree of a person who competes at the highest levels in American scholastics for whatever that's worth. So that's why he could even beat Trump at Trump's own game. If Trump doesn't run, I think it's obvious why he would be the second pick, which is that. He's head and shoulders above any other candidates in the polling when it comes to if Trump doesn't run, who do you want to be the nominee? So I'll let the polling speak for itself there.
2: No, I think that's a good argument, namely because even though support for Trump remains high in polls, there is a significant chunk of Republicans who also say they want someone else. And when they say they want someone else, the person who overwhelmingly comes in second is DeSantis. And granted, the RNC you know, has kind of thrown cold water on maybe the Republican nominee being in a debate with the Democratic nominee. But at least among Republicans, you can picture Trump in his upper 70s and going up against DeSantis, who? Will just be so much younger, and I do think the American public, given a younger choice that would feel viable, might go for DeSantis. It's another reason why I'm interested in the 2022 midterm results. Trump is really staking his claim with a lot of endorsements. They might not work out. Um, He could have a very mixed track record, and it could be more that his legacy is fighting, you know, for Americans, which really appeals to Republicans in terms of messaging versus him being the candidate that
1: moves forward. Arguing my case for me. I love it. Nate, what were you going to say? Yeah. I mean,
0: in some ways, DeSantis has outflanked Trump on his right. I mean, whatever else you say about Trump, he was actually not particularly interested in like LGBT issues, whereas now DeSantis and his advisors are back to like making homophobic <laughs> allegations about how gay people and trans people are groomers and things like that. It's also the fact that even though the usual mechanism is someone loses an election, you think they're a loser. Trump's trying to circumvent that by lying about the election being stolen. There is a desire, I think, for a new storyline, someone who is fresher and more interesting. In some ways, I think Trump's position is analogous to Hillary Clinton in 2016. But I think DeSantis is more like Joe Biden or something than a Bernie Sanders, right? Someone who was a you know, the governor of Florida is ordinarily someone who might become your party's nominee, more so than a kind of eccentric senator from Vermont or something. And so maybe Trump gets a little stale. And I'm kind of arguing against myself now, I guess. But, like, it's not crazy to think that DeSantis has a, has a real shot.
1: All right. Let's motor along, Sarah. Number three, this is where it gets fun.
2: This is where it gets fun. And I'd have to say, Lion Ted Cruz. Um, I could see it happen. He finished second in the 2016 contest. So that kind of amounts to a front runner when you think about it. And he too very clearly has presidential ambitions, has been making the CPAC round, voted against certifying the election results. I think Cruz's biggest liability remains that he is willing to kowtow to whoever he thinks he can garner influence with and has not been terribly well-liked among fellow Republican politicians. But he's actually fairly popular among Republicans. He has done a great job shoring up the evangelical base, which particularly in a primary is really important to Republicans. And I think he has also doubled down on the culture wars. You know, look back to um, Jackson's Supreme Court hearing. He was the one who was bringing up critical race theory and really trying to tie it to her name. And I think, you know, he's not in a position like DeSantis, where he's the governor of Texas. He's the senator, but he's definitely making the same kind of culture war appeals part of his brand identity, and politics. And he did do well in 2016. And I think, too, is kind of painted as an ally of Trump. Now, I don't think he would run against Trump, but I think he could be a very serious contender.
1: Okay, so all three first picks are sort of in the same vein of like trying to be your culture warrior, your fighter, quite conservative, like not really making overtures towards the middle, which as much as probably Democrats may not realize this, oftentimes successful Republican nominees do. So like Trump was actually perceived to be pretty moderate because of his economic stances and like not talking about privatizing Social Security or not talking about shrinking public benefits. then, of course, before that, there was Mitt Romney, McCain and Bush. And so what we've argued so far is the GOP doesn't make any overtures towards the center, really. Is that what we think will be the case in 2024?
2: It's too soon to say the establishment is dead. I do think though, you know, we'll see what Nathaniel's pick here is. But so far, none of us have kind of picked an establishment friendly candidate or a more moderate Republican.
0: I mean, with Cruz, it's more an issue of Ted Cruz himself, right? Is that the most appealing package? Yeah,
2: I don't dispute that.
0: (laughs) Strategically, he'll probably do things that are right. But like, but at some sen- in some sense, politics is a likability contest. And, and I don't think that many people like Ted Cruz particularly. I don't mean that in a mean way, but like, you know, I mean, that's an issue when you're trying to like, A, win voter support and B, also win support from other influential Republicans, which maybe matters less now in there where the establishment, quote unquote, is very disempowered. But it can't help to not have so many friends among your colleagues, for example.
1: Yeah.
3: All right. Nathaniel. Just to counteract that a little bit, this is an old poll from last year, but Cruz's favorability ratings among Republicans are 60 percent and only 25 percent unfavorable. So I think the Ted Cruz's unlikable thing is kind of a D.C. narrative rather than among actual primary voters.
0: That's not that good. Among your own party? It's not great, but he's clearly popular. This is the same polling where everyone's wearing masks, by the way, (laughs) rake
2: (laughs) <laughs> Except Ted Cruz.
1: <laughs> I don't know. Ted Cruz. For being a Republican in Texas, his favorability in 2018 was also pretty low. Not for nothing. But okay, Nathaniel, let's keep it rolling. You get two picks here snake draft.
3: All right. Well, you're not going to like my next pick then because it relies on similar logic. So, with my first pick, I'm going to go with former Vice President Mike Pence. I think that he is. That is a wild
2: card. The establishment right? rises. Yeah.
3: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think that people have been discounting him and his future in the party after he kind of broke with Trump on January 6th, obviously, and didn't fully embrace the big lie. But he was also... Trump's vice president for four years. And a lot of Republicans have very fond memories of of that administration. Um, He still is seen favorably among the Republican rank and file. So according to a Marquette University Law School poll from last month, he has a 64% favorable rating and a 21% unfavorable rating with Republicans, which to Nate's point could be better. But he's still, you know, it's not like the whole party sees him as a traitor um, the way that Trump does, for example. And then obviously, you know, just the fact that he was... The former vice president has near universal name recognition. He could appeal to you know, some of the more establishment types, certainly the evangelical wing of the party, but also maybe pull in some um, some of the Trumpier folks. You know, we've talked about like the different wings or circles of the GOP. He covers a few of those bases. Um, and then just based on the the straight up polling of 2024, you know, it's obviously very early, but I don't think that the the early polls at this point are totally worthless. And DeSantis, I mean, Trump, obviously is, is way ahead. and But in polls without Trump, DeSantis is the clear front runner. But after that is Pence. So in a Harris poll conducted just a few days ago, Pence is at 20% in second place after DeSantis. And uh, the next person isn't until 8%, and that's Ted Cruz. So I think if he decides he wants to run, would be kind of one of the main contenders. Probably is going to be Trump or DeSantis, let's be clear. But if in case they implode or don't run, I think Pence is well-positioned
1: number 4 pick I don't I don't hate it I'm not going to argue against it for the sake of time though let's let you dive right into your number 5 pick
3: okay so I'll do the fun pick Tucker Carlson and this is a hat tip to our colleague, Jeffrey Skelly, who made this pick in our Slack chat draft of this um, a few months ago. And I thought it was pretty astute and outside the box. He is somebody, again, with universal name recognition. He has a you know popular television show on Fox News. A lot of people would, I think, you know, walk over coals for him. So if he decides he wants it, and I'm not sure that he would, but uh, I think he would be able to make a kind of Trump-esque splash in the field, kind of similar to the way that, that Trump did in 2016. And I think that Carlson could do that in 2024.
2: Good pick. He was in my middle finger tier.
1: Mm. (laughs) I don't know. I think that people oftentimes overrate the sway and seductiveness of cable news and cable news personalities, right? Like on a good night, Tucker Carlson's audience is 3 million people. That's a lot for a cable news show, but it's not like I think saying people would walk over Colts for Tucker Carlson is like 5% of the Republican Party would walk over Colts for Tucker Carlson. You
3: should see how many people vote in primaries, Galen. Turnout is not, not high. I know,
1: I know. But like, it's going to be a blockbuster presidential primary. Who knows? But like, if we're still in the situation where like there's a war and there's inflation and whatever, maybe people want a little bit more of like a real deal politician instead of that guy who's always causing dust-ups on Twitter or whatever. I don't know. But, like, I've been wrong before about that, so. (laughs) You're not alone, Galen.
2: If it's going to be a celebrity candidate, I think that's a good pick.
1: Who are other Republican celebrities who have, like, broader appeal that aren't cable news personalities?
2: I don't think he would run, but Peter Thiel would be interesting.
1: Oh, wow. Hmm.
2: I think he's more interested in, you know, backing candidates and having influence in the background versus being on the front stage. And I I don't know Elon Musk's political affiliation, but that could be an interesting presidential
1: run as well. Yeah, those are two good ones, Sarah.
0: Neither Peter Thiel nor Elon Musk were born in the US,
1: so they're not eligible. Ah, there we go. Damn it. Okay, Sarah, you are next.
2: I'm still in my tier one. I would say um, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Hmm. He was a Trump loyalist. Bad pick?
1: No, oh. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> we we used to have a culture of saying that every pick was a bad pick. And I realized that I no see. one had done that yet. So I just, <laughs> I had to, I had to sort of I appreciate make that it. ode to our 2020 culture.
2: Yeah. So Mike Pompeo, right, he's clearly getting in shape, ready to hit the trails. He visited Iowa, I believe, earlier this year, and I think has a lot of credentials he can point to in terms of loyalty to former President Trump, has a lot of governing experience as well, in case, you know, like the Tucker Carlson version of the party is very light on that front. I think he, at least as far as charisma goes, has a little bit more than, say, you know, Senator Josh Hawley or um, Tom Cotton. I was blanking on his name (laughs) because he's just not very charismatic. Even though I think both cut very uh, convincing profiles, I think someone like Pompeo could be formidable.
1: Anyone want to argue against that?
3: I mean, I think now we're getting into the just kind of generic Republican tier, and he's definitely one of them. (laughs) I don't see why he would stand out.
1: You know, in a recent Harvard-Harris poll, Mike Pompeo is at 3%. It's kind of like Trump has to not run, and then something really weird has to happen in the primary, which would make being former Secretary of State maybe his most important attribute in some way. I don't know. Like, there's a war in the Middle East, I, you know—
2: yeah. I mean, three percent, though, you know, I mean, that's kind of where Klobuchar, Judge first started um, in the Democratic primary. Granted, they didn't win the oh, nomination. Yes. President
3: Amy Klobuchar.
2: I know. But look, <laughs> I'm just saying there could be a Pompeo surge. You know, you never know.
1: I'm going to pick someone who I don't think would commonly be placed at number seven. But I am going to go with Senator Marsha Blackburn, because at hmm. the very least, I think she is a prime candidate for a VP pick. If Republican voters are focused on electability and understand that they've done quite poorly with women voters in recent elections, they might choose to play the identity card and choose a woman who has a lot of the appeal of Trump or Ron DeSantis, but also sort of creates that cross-pressure with her identity. A little bit of background about Marsha Blackburn. She used to be in Congress. She's now a senator from Tennessee as a member of Congress. She went by Congressman Marsha Blackburn as proof of her conservative bona fides. She did not like the term Congresswoman. She announced her candidacy back in 2018, basically saying, I'm a rock rib Republican. I pack a pistol in my purse. I'm used to the culture wars. I will be your fighter. She talks about abortion a lot. She talks about immigration just as harshly as some of her other competitors in this field, I think that at the very least, I could see in a competitive Republican primary a couple news cycles where she is close to the top of the pack or leading, and her possibility as a VP pick is bantied about throughout. So that is why I am choosing Marsha Blackburn. Feel free to slay me. Interesting.
0: It's kind of a hipster-ass pick. A hip- yeah. Okay. Is that a compliment?
1: No. <laughs> you got to back that up with something. Why is that a hipster ass pick?
0: Because there's a much more obvious name I'm going to take from you, which is a much better pick. No, like if you wrong, actually mate. have one in the you'd look no. for my candidate.
3: No, it, is Haley it, is, is it not going to. No, it's Nikki it's Nikki Haley. loves the Nikki Haley <laughs> pick.
2: Is Sticky it really
1: Haley. Nikki Haley?
2: It hundred percent
0: is. But <laughs> yes, <laughs> she is the. He,
3: this is Nate's first pick in the
0: in the Slack chat too. In the prediction market, she is the third most likely nominee after Trump and DeSantis. So there's huge amounts of value here. Listen, she has a very accomplished resume. If you talk about the notion of like identity politics, then she's someone who, I mean, maybe we're kind of circling around this. I do think there's something to like Republicans who think they can like prove how not racist or sexist they are by kind of nominating a woman who's a person of color. She's recognizable. You know, again, it's not so easy to totally build a brand up in two and a half years, which is kind of the time remaining right now, right? She is a well-known name. We're not talking about something which is tremendously likely, but I think she's at the very least one of the eight most likely Republicans to become the nominee. And let me give you one other comparison, too, here, which is it was believed throughout 2020 that, like oh, Democrats are moving to the left, right? This is the time for Warren or Bernie Sanders. And even the nominees that were a little squishier kind of tend to move to the left, for example, then, you know, and then Democrats cared a lot about electability and pick someone more moderate. Although Joe Biden's had a pretty liberal agenda, but still relatively moderate in Joe Biden. And so I don't know, I think Republicans actually care about electability. I think she may read as electable and I just think it's a good flyer to take here at
1: with the 8th overall pick. Why Nikki Haley over possible other South Carolina contender Tim Scott?
0: I mean Tim Scott might not be a bad pick either. I still have a pick left to go so I'm not sure I want to burn that pick right now.
1: <laughs> well, it is a snake draft so you get to burn that pick right now. Who are you picking? I'll pick South Carolina Senator Tim Scott.
2: <laughs> damn it. Damn it. <laughs>
1: That's who I was going to pick.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a
3: that's, pick. A, that's a better pick than Haley. Much better in my opinion.
1: Not according to betting markets. Yeah. I don't think betting teams. markets at this point are I don't stupid. think the betting
3: markets have the finger on the pulse of the Republican primary voter. It's
1: literally like we've heard of Nikki Haley before. Let's say that she be the third most likely. Like, I don't think that's very attuned to like where the Republican party has been at.
0: She's a governor, a congresswoman, UN ambassador. And
2: And she's managed to be like vocal against Trump without alienating him, which is pretty impressive. um, I think. But she's like,
3: come very close to alienating him. She's alienated yeah. him but before. she still and hasn't, has though. Been able, no. She's been able to kind of roll it back a bit. Yeah. But she's, like, teetering on the edge, I think, of, like, a bad tweet or a bad not tweet away. And I think that's a really dangerous place to be. I think, frankly, especially for yeah. a woman, like, I, mm-hmm. I think that... I see Nate's point, but I do think that Democrats are certainly more concerned with electability than Republicans. Republicans have traditionally been more of a, you have to be a true conservative, and I think that she has this record of not being a true conservative to the extent that conservative now means pro-Trump, and there's all this research saying that people perceive female candidates as more liberal, and I think somebody like Blackburn... it's an authenticity
1: problem. Right, exactly. When you try to have it both ways, you don't come off as authentic.
3: Exactly, and someone like Blackburn who has been unarguably conservative for her entire career wouldn't have that problem as much as, as Haley does.
2: But remember, I feel like that cuts back to what we were saying earlier. Like Trump, at least in the 2016 primary, was a moderate. Like I don't know that Republicans care about electability less. Hmm.
3: He was seen as more moderate... In the general election, we know that, but
2: in the primary too. Like Cruz was much more like conceived of as the conservative candidate. Yeah,
3: but Trump was the was the fighter was the fighter candidate. He was the tougher yeah, candidate. And that's was, like, what conservative means now. That's what I mean. Like when I say conservative, I mean like Trumpy.
2: I don't know if it yeah. meant that at the time. I guess is what I mean. I don't
3: mean like religious conservative. But
2: wait, Tim Scott. That's a why good pick. That, pick. that is a good pick.
0: For some of the same reasons i think republicans would like the idea that we can nominate a black man he's someone who has kind of managed to navigate a course that i think splices between the kind of more conservative and moderate factions of the party pretty well he hasn't gotten himself into trouble um at the same time i think he would be seen by what's left of the establishment as a safer and more sane nominee than some of the more conservative people we're talking about so there's a lot to like there i think
3: yeah. He's someone who has been able to, I think, credibly not piss off either wing of the party in a way that Haley has kind of made enemies on both sides with what she's done. But Tim Scott has he, he gave, I think, a thoughtful speech at the RNC that contained like, I mean, clearly he's a guy who he can argue to Republicans, you know, let's try to you know, see Democrats call me racist. And he was he's not too Trumpy in terms of like the big lie and stuff like that. And yet, to my knowledge, Trump has never come after him.
1: He's been able to stay above the fray in a way that has been really rare in Republican politics over the past five years. And he clearly has people who want him to go far in the party because he's raising boatloads of money, right? Mm -hmm. He's up for re-election this year in an utterly uncompetitive race and has raised, you know, I think the last number that I saw was like $7 million, which... It's still early in the midterms. He'll end up raising a boatload of money before he ever potentially announces his candidacy.
2: Honestly, I think my biggest question with him is is like, is he too positive for the national stage? Like, I feel like oftentimes he is kind of put in a position of giving a speech of optimism and hope. And now granted, you could say that like that was the Obama playbook in 08, but I feel like we've not seen that same playbook from Republicans. And just the role that negative partisanship plays in our politics, I do wonder to what extent like Scott would be perceived as kind of a, a fighter for the party.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I have a question here before we go any further, which is that we have been podcasting for quite some time. We've (laughs) barely made it to the third round of (laughs) this snake draft. I was forewarned by some people, including someone on this podcast by the name of Nathaniel Rakich, that we had planned a podcast that was indeed too long. I take that criticism. I don't know that I ever disagreed with it, but I I think I didn't fully contend with (laughs) how long. Like I was like, oh, if it's an hour and 15 minutes... (laughs) It'll be fine. I think we're on track to put out something that's longer than an hour and 15 minutes. So I'm going to ask all of you, how do you feel about meeting back here at the same time next week to do the Democratic snake draft? Let's do it.
0: Yeah, I think we sad will not do a good job with it if we try to attach it to this podcast.
1: Nate, does that mean that I can nail you down for next week, 1130 a.m. on Monday? I think I'm over. To do a snake draft. Yeah.
0: I'm always up for a snake
3: draft. I mean, yes, sure. okay,
1: all right. He will drop all it. of his
3: other plans. He's anti-anti-draft, anti-anti- like, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not, not coming on the podcast next week would be anti-draft, Nate. He yeah, was,
1: yes. you got it now. You don't have the option. <laughs> okay, that makes me feel more freed up to do a real third round to this draft. So with that, for my third round pick... I'm going to pick somebody who you will potentially make fun of me for. But I think at this point in the game, it's fair. And it's a bid that there will be a sort of vibe shift within the Republican Party, that trends don't last forever, that this party that has sort of like sought out a fighter over the past six years might pursue someone who's a little more even keeled and has sort of like. Broad suburban appeal and even a even a throwback to the Republican Party of yesteryear through his connections to the Carlisle Group. And that is Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia. So here's why he can't run for a second term as governor of Virginia, which is one of the strongest incentives to seek higher office or different office. As politics nerds may know, he's just started to packs that will allow him to fundraise and endorse candidates in the midterms and sort of start putting together a network for a potential run. I think in this vibe shift Republican Party that we're talking about, electability is sort of put on the forefront. What Democrats have had to offer is so bad that we need someone who can just win. And maybe in this, say there isn't a competitive Democratic primary in the first two states, which the Republican Party has already confirmed they're going to keep their calendar. The first two states, there are a good number of independents who may end up voting in Republican primaries if the Democratic primary isn't competitive. And I could see someone like Glenn Youngkin at least doing well in New Hampshire. I'm not exactly sure about Iowa, but he's sort of in the mold of New Hampshire's governor to begin with, Chris Sununu. And I mean, his best argument is that he won in a state that Biden won by 10 points. And if you want to exile the Democrats from power in Washington, do it with somebody whose election record is tried and true.
0: I feel like sweater vests are very New Hampshire. And that's something that's a <laughs> very young trademark. No, I think something about like these last two picks for the people that project more optimism. I mean, I think this is a potential differentiator from Democrats. And this is probably a longer rant. I do think there is something to the notion that like progressives kind of want you to feel bad about (laughs) yourself for lots of reasons in different ways. And kind of maybe there is an opening there for optimism to differentiate from that. Yeah.
2: Ask Cory Booker. He ran on happiness, guys. Did not do well. Sure. I was surprised. Well, by that's because
0: that. he's a Democrat, and Democrats like to be miserable, but Republicans like to be happy. <laughs>
2: and so
1: <laughs> no, this is literally, Strong. this is literally shows up in polls. This literally shows up in polls that Republicans say they're happier than Democrats.
2: Just like personal happiness, though, right?
1: Yes. But the whole brand of like, there's so much wrong with the country that like being happy and optimistic and not talking about all that's wrong with the country is sort of like contrary to that progressive ethos of like, we need mm. to highlight all of the injustices. Let's talk Mm -hmm. about them a lot and talk about how we're going to solve them, which may be the optimistic part of that. But the first piece of the equation is that you have to talk about all of the injustices. And in doing so, you may not sound like all that happy of a warrior. Yeah. So I hear that. I, you know, I, I get that. All right. We are back to you, Sarah. We'll recap our lineups once you and Nathaniel go.
2: So still a tier one pick that no one uh, went for. I would say Florida Senator Rick Scott clearly has presidential ambitions. You know, the Republican Party didn't put out a platform, so Scott decided to put out his own, much to the ire of Mitch McConnell. So I think he has similar problems to Cruz in the sense that he might not have that many friends um, who are other Republican lawmakers. But he did well in his Senate race in Florida, winning that. And in 2014, when he was uh, running for governor then, and it was kind of an unexpected success. He's personally very wealthy. He's definitely a small C conservative, an ally of Trump. I think he could be an an interesting pick.
3: Yeah, I have stopped underestimating Rick Scott after he won three closely contested races in Florida, at least two of which I did not think he was gonna win. But the thing that has given me pause about him is that his platform that he released kind of hasn't gone over well with Republicans. Like Mitch McConnell and people are apparently kind of pissed at him because some of the stuff in there is is kind of out there and, and easy for Democrats to attack. So maybe that tells me that he doesn't have, I guess, yeah, that's the, the Ted Cruz problem is that he doesn't have a lot of institutional support. But I think overall, people should underestimate him at their own peril.
2: Yeah, honestly, my biggest question around someone like McConnell is, is his heyday over? Like, there's no question that he has a huge grip on the party, not disputing that. But he's also, I feel like, in the twilight of his career. And depending on who, you know, Republicans end up nominating in some of these Senate races, how they actually do in the general election, I think there could be some of that same shift we've seen in the House, where it's been much more conservative, pro-Trump, happening in the Senate. And someone like McConnell, does it really matter that Scott upset him. Maybe less so. I think now it still matters somewhat, but I'm intrigued to see how that plays out here in 2022.
1: All right. Nathaniel, close us out. I'd just like
3: to put on the record that having an odd number of rounds in a snake draft is blatantly unfair. So, having issued that objection, uh, my final That's kind of a negative
1: message to run on, Nathaniel.
3: We're all about optimism here. Yeah, so apparently I would do really well in the Democratic primary. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um... Uh, My pick is going to be Texas Governor Greg Abbott. I think he is a poor man's Ron DeSantis. He has not gotten the same national name recognition and, and polling support that DeSantis has, but he's done a lot of the same things. He's really leaned hard into you know, the culture war and he's helped pass some very conservative bills in Texas on abortion, on voting rights. I think he clearly has a strong story to tell if he runs for president. And uh, he also is a monster fundraiser. Um, he's raised millions and millions, I think something like $40 million for his Google run. He can't use that for president, but it shows that he kind of has the Rolodex to, to raise a lot of money.
1: I guess I don't hate that. He has managed the Chamber of Commerce Republican to Trump Republican straddling better than someone like Nikki Haley, I think. So I'll give him that. At this point, three rounds in, not a bad pick. Anyone have any critiques to make?
0: No, it's not. It's not crazy at all. Good value selection. Yeah.
1: All right, we have reached the end of our first Republican 2024 presidential nominee draft. Unfortunately, we're not going to make it to the Democrats this episode. As you've all heard, we will make it to the Democrats next week. So something to look forward to, a cliffhanger to keep you coming back to. But the final thing we have to do here before we close out is to rate our drafts. So, Nate, you have drafted former President Trump, Nikki Haley, and Tim Scott to your 2024 team. I have drafted Ron DeSantis, Marsha Blackburn, and Glenn Youngkin to my draft team. Sarah, you have drafted Ted Cruz, Mike Pompeo, and Rick Scott. And Nathaniel, you have drafted Mike Pence, Tucker Carlson, and Greg Abbott. Is anyone willing to argue that someone has the best lineup that isn't themselves? That isn't
0: themselves, no.
2: (laughs) Very on brand.
1: I
0: think Nate has the
3: best lineup because he has Trump.
0: Yeah,
2: I it's think kind Nate of and Galen have the best first picks. They lost me yeah. on their seconds.
3: Tim Scott is a is a very good value yeah. pick for Nate. So I think having Trump and then having a solid backup in Tim Scott gives him the comfortable lead. I am sad to say.
1: I would like to brand my lineup like the future of the Republican Party. That's fair. Desantis, Blackburn, Yunkin. I don't, yeah. they're they're not necessarily young guns, but they're people who have young a, you know, a career ahead of them. They're not, they're, they're not pushing 80. Eric Cantor. <laughs> Eric, exactly. Oh shoot. That was going to be my fourth round pick. <laughs> um, I don't know if I'm willing to say that I would choose Nate's lineup over mine, but I just might. More importantly, listeners, which lineup would you pick? Who do you think did the best in our first draft of 2024 candidates? Is that it? Are we done? Does anyone want to name someone who hasn't been named who should get an honorable mention?
2: Yes. Christy Noam. That would have been mm. a good fourth round pick. Governor South Dakota. I think now that Covid's kind of receded from the background. Not making as much of a name for herself as DeSantis, but she's definitely still been part of the culture war fights and I think has been pretty popular among Republicans as well. Not as popular as DeSantis in the polls, but still a, a strong contender. Kind of fits more into the the Nikki Haley, Tim Scott mold, or even Marsha Blackburn in terms of nominating someone who's not a white man.
3: Guys, I still think Marco Rubio has a shot at the 2016 nomination.
2: 2016 nomination slip of the okay. tongue. Okay,
3: okay,
0: <laughs> okay. I know a subtweet when I when I hear one. Uh,
3: <laughs> I was with you that, at that time, Nate. So
2: yeah,
0: we went down on that
3: ship together.
2: But so both of you just like now, no more Rubio. I think he was still on my list. I could see it. He was. Yeah, I I wouldn't rule him out.
1: I feel about Nate's selection of Nikki Haley the way I feel about. Yeah. Nate's relationship with Marco Rubio in 2016. <laughs> okay, Nate, are you going to disagree? Are you going to disagree? I
0: mean, who knows? If Rubio had not fucked up in that debate, maybe we have President Rubio right now. I don't really believe that. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: it's not like Chris Christie winning that debate has done much for him. Notice no one said him hmm. for ABC President,
1: News colleague so. Chris Christie. Yes, he is our colleague. I
2: shouldn't discount that.
3: Trump Jr. Nobody mentioned Trump Jr., which is interesting. He makes
2: it into all the
1: polls, but like it seems ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, let's leave things there before we get a little too crazy. Thank you, Nate, Sarah, and Nathaniel. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bittegary-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vaneski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.